listening to Habs Culture, a Montreal Canadiens podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Habs Culture and on Twitter at Habs underscore culture to stay on track with news and updates. Episode 53 of the Habs Culture podcast. My name is Justin Schwartz and today I'm alone. Now this is not something that I'm used to whatsoever, but it's going to take a little bit of getting used to. Unfortunately, Mark Anthony has had to step aside for a little while. Um, he's been he's been given some great opportunities um, in his in his career, and I'm super super stoked for him. And I really hope that things turn out. But for the moment, it's going to be just me talking Canadians hockey. And to be honest with you guys, look, I'm sitting here and I feel really really weird. It's not something I'm used to at all, and it's really tough to kind of talk to yourself, but I really hope you guys enjoy, and I'm really hoping that, you know, the topics that we bring up, they're they're things that you guys want to hear, and and like I said, we we always mention this at the beginning of episodes, at the end of episodes, if there's any topics in particular you guys want to chat about, be my guest, throw them at me, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, whatever, give me some suggestions, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm really trying here, and I'm really excited to talk hockey, and I want I want you guys to be involved, and I want you guys to be a part of it. So I'm really really excited, and I know I already mentioned this, but I just wanted to say that my time with Mark Anthony working aside working aside alongside Mark Anthony on the podcast was honestly something that was something that was kind of just a spur of the moment activity, and it just ended up being something so awesome. And we had like such a we had such a great time recording all these episodes, and we spent countless hours together trying to figure out, you know, so many tech problems and and just trying to put put in place the right the right procedures so we can so we can actually function as a duo and actually pump out the best content possible. And it took a lot of hard work and a lot of time to actually kind of get to where we are now. So leading up to where we are. It, it, Mark Anthony and I have worked really, really well together, and it's really sad that we're going to have to take some time away, but I just wanted to say that I'm super stoked for him. I'm just reiterating here. I'm super stoked for him, and look, guys, I, I hope you guys enjoy. So now that we've got that out of the way and I'm kind of getting my feet wet here, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Cole Caulfield signs an eight year 7.75 million dollar extension and i think that you guys are probably a little bit in, uh, interested interested to hear what i have to say considering that we haven't i haven't or we haven't put out an episode since i want to say april we haven't talked hockey since april there's a lot that's happened from now until then and i'll try and touch on everything it's not going to be a super long episode but I'm going to try and keep you guys engaged. I'm going to try and talk about the, the, the fun stuff. But Cole Caulfield, I would say one of the pillars of this Montreal Canadiens team at the moment, signs an eight-year extension with the Canadiens. And not only is it an eight-year extension, but in my opinion, a very f- team-friendly contract. A contract that is friendly for both sides of the deal. Caulfield gets... A bag, he gets his payday, and the Montreal Canadiens are able to keep around are able to keep around a potential forty goal scorer in this league. 
Now let's let's rewind a little bit. Cole Caulfield finished with 26 goals and 36 points in 46 games last season. That's before he went out with his injury. We can we can pretty confidently say that he was on pace for 40 goals. This is a guy that for a team like the Montreal Canadiens who have struggled in the past to bring in top-end talent, especially through the draft, it was, in my opinion, almost a must that they had to go out and sign this guy and keep him around for the long term. And I know, I know that there were a few scares going around, whether it was on Twitter, on social media, about Caulfield not re-signing. But all I'm going to say is that I'm happy that it happened sooner rather than later. He's still going into a year where he's on the last year of his entry-level deal, and then his contract will kick in. His contract will expire when he's 30 years old, so plenty of time to renew that contract, potentially. That's a long time from now, but I guess we'll see when we get there. But all of that to say is that this this kid is sticking around for a while. He's here to stay. And let's not forget that he's going to be playing alongside Nick Suzuki for the rest of his career in Montreal. They've developed chemistry. They figured it out. Last year was a was a won't call it a breakout season, but it was a finding yourself type of season for those two. And I think that it's only going to get better with time. And let's let's move towards the the team side of things here. Cole Caulfield as an individual is an incredible player. But what this allows the Montreal Canadiens to do as a team is quite honestly incredible. Because the 7.75 is a great number for what he's done so far and what he's projected to do. He can obviously outplay his contract, but for what he's done so far and what he's projected to do, I think it's a very fair evaluation. If you look at that specific draft class when he was drafted, you look at the number one overall pick and you look at Jack Hughes and you say, well, he was given a contract just recently where he was given $8 million a year. You can't give him more than Jack Hughes. But then you look at the lower limit, the lower $7 million limit. And you say, well, Dylan Cousins was given $7.1 million. And Matt Boldy was given $7 million. So for Caulfield to go out and get 7.75 was very fair in my opinion. And I think not only was it fair, but I think it was, like I said, it's very team-friendly and it allows for a lot of potential growth for Cole Caulfield as a 22-year-old in this league. But let's go, let's let's see, let's talk about what this does for the Montreal Canadiens going forward. Well, now they have Nick Suzuki getting paid $8 million a year for the next eight years. And you have Cole Caulfield getting paid 7.75. Those are two players in your top six, and those guys are locked into your top six. There's no doubt about that. But how are they going to, what are they going to do next? What's the next move for this team in terms of building that top six? They're going to have to add. And look, whether it's going to be through free agency or whether it's going to be via trade, they're going to have enough money to, to spend a little bit. And we've always talked on this, on this podcast about how difficult it's been for a team like the Leafs who have a lot of money locked up into four players. And how they're unable to actually surround those guys with the right depth. And don't get me wrong. I don't think that Cole Caulfield or Nick Suzuki are on the same level as Marner or Austin Matthews. But they're good enough to be top line guys. And our second line guys, again, this is all speculation. 
But whether it's a guy like Pierre-Luc Dubois or whether it's a guy, another guy that they want to go out and get in free agency or whether it's a guy that they want to dra- or whether it's through the draft for that matter, they're going to have enough money to give, an- give out another relatively lucrative contract. So it's exciting considering that the Habs brass, consisting of Gordon and Jeff Gordon and Kent Hughes, are well aware of how to build a team. And of course, we haven't really been able to see it firsthand yet because the Montreal Canadiens team has not been particularly competitive for the past two years. But you see where this is trending. They were a bottom five team this year. They, were 20, they finished 28th in the league. But there's a lot of room for improvement. And there's a lot of room for improvement, especially when now you're a team that has the money to spend and go out and get guys. Hughes has made it relatively clear about what his expectations are going into next year. He didn't rule out the fact that the Montreal Canadiens were going to be more competitive than they were last year. And of course, that's hard to, that's pretty easy to beat if you ask me, considering that if you're looking at a healthy Montreal Canadiens team, considering how many injuries the Habs had last season. But if everyone stays healthy, And depending on what happens in this draft and in free agency specifically, this team can be, this team will will dig itself out of of the hole that that they've been in for the past couple of years. But Hughes, like I said, has made it relatively clear that he he wants to be a little bit, that he wants to be competitive. But he's not going to go out and make these moves for the short term. If he's going out to get someone through the free agency, he's not going to, he's not doing that for a two-year period. He's looking at what that can look like in five years down the road. And I think that's super important considering that he's not willing to just jump the gun because we've had two losing seasons and that's, that's our tanking period and it's over. Of course, they're going to be a little bit better next year, but it doesn't mean that they, won't, that they won't be bad enough to have a top 10 pick. They're still taking the slow route, but gradually getting better and better. And I like to compare our situation and obviously... This team is, is in a little bit of a different spot now, but to a Buffalo Sabres team, a very young Buffalo Sabres team. They're, they just missed the playoffs last season. And if you look at the Montreal, and, and it's, been, it's been a while for the Sabres. It's been a while. If you look at the Habs, they've been in a position now for a couple years where they've gone through a slow rebuild, but they're building up, they're building up these building blocks. And at one point in time, all these building blocks talking about players, are all going to be on the same page. They're all going to be the same age and they're all going to be developing together and they're all going to be ready to compete at the same time. And that's what I like about the Sabres. They have a very young core, a very young decor, a very young offensive core, a very young goaltending duo that are ready to all compete at the exact same time. The, compet- the, the window is the same. And I think that's what's super exciting for the Habs is that, like I said, they're not going to go out and acquire guys for the short term. They're going to acquire guys that are going to be playing with that core of Suzuki and Caulfield and Slavkovsky. And then on the D end, you have the Gouli, the Harris, the Jackye, right? So all these guys are going to be building, are going to be coming up together. They're all going to be competing together and they're going to learn how to win as a team together. And I think that that's super important. Now, if we look at the financial side of things, I'm not going to go into it into too much depth because I think that is a great topic of discussion for another episode because I'm just kind of trying to touch on Caulfield here and, and just show how 
how, how big of a how big of a deal this signing really is. But the Montreal Canadiens right now, and this was before Caulfield and Pozzetta signed their contracts, had 23 players signed at a cap hit of just under 74 million dollars. Now, now they have now they have 25 players signed, and I don't know what that cap hit equals. I can I would be able to do the quick math, but now they have 25 players signed going into next season. But before this, before this whole thing went down, they had nine and a half million dollars in cap space, plus price, uh, carry prices LTIR money, which is about ten and a half million. So you were looking at a little bit north of twenty million dollars going into next season, and now you take out the eight million dollars from Caulfield and the eight hundred thousand from Pozzetta, so you're looking at about eleven million dollars, give or take, which is still an ample amount of money to work with, and to improve your team going into next season. Now, are there players that are worth going out and giving big contracts to? Probably not. Probably not. But it is nice to have that flexibility, and it is really nice to be able to make a move if you need to and change up the team dynamic if you need to. But what I really like, and this is the last thing I'm going to say on this topic, what I really, really like is that they were able to lock up Suzuki, lock up Caulfield, and now they're in a great position to build around those guys and bring in a supporting cast, a very strong supporting cast from lines one to four that are going to compete. And like I said, it's not, it might not necessarily be next year, but I think that we're closer than we may think. I'm going to use that as a transition to talk a little bit about the Kyle Dubas situation. And not specifically the Kyle Dubas, well, specifically the Kyle Dubas situation, but also the Leaf situation, a little bit about the Calgary situation, and a little bit about Brad Tree living coming in as the new GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs. I've always came onto this podcast and always said that Sheldon Keefe and Kyle Dubas were never attached at the hip. And I really didn't think so. And I think my point was proven. However, I thought that Sheldon Keefe was going to be the first one out the door. I didn't think it was going to be Kyle Dubas. And my opinion on that kind of still stands. I still think that Kyle Dubas should be a me- or should be a part of the Toronto Maple Leafs brass. And look, there's a lot of things that we don't know and I'm not going to go I'm not going to start speculating here. I kind of want to focus more on what's to come. I want to focus on what this means for both franchises and what they're going to be able to do. And I'm and and yes, I want to talk a little bit about the Calgary Flames, but I also want to talk about how Dubis is going to be able to as the as the president of hockey ops what he's going to be able to do in Pittsburgh. And I, and I believe that that's a little bit of a tough situation as well. But all I'm going to say is that I think that I think that there was something going on between Kyle Dubas and Brandon Shanahan. There was obviously there was obviously some sort of I I wouldn't necessarily call it a stigma, but I think that there was a lot of things that were probably unspoken. And and you know what you can you can start asking the questions well. How much control did Shanahan have over Dubis? And how many trades did Shanahan veto uh, that, that Dubis had made? Or that he had, you know, yeah, that he had made with other GMs, but Brendan Shanahan didn't want those trades to go through? And how many trades should have Brendan Shanahan have vetoed that might have made Dubis look a little less bad? Who knows? But I think that that situation is really, really interesting considering that it was very quick of the Pittsburgh Penguins ownership group to turn to a guy like Dubis and hand him an eight-year an eight contract 
as president of hockey operations at such a young age. So clearly there's some promise in a guy like Kyle Dubas, and clearly he has something to offer. There's no doubt about that. And I really do think that his job, and I and I truly believe that his job was secure going into going into the playoffs, or sorry, let's say exiting the first round, considering that the moves that he made without the acquisitions of Ryan O'Reilly, without the acquisitions of Noel Chari, without the acquisition of Sam Lafferty, without the acquisition of Jake McCabe and Luke Shen on the back end, this team is not making it out of the first round. So it's really interesting to me to see how things played out. Obviously, there's a lot of things that we don't know, and there's a lot of things that have not been spoken about. But nonetheless, it's it's a really interesting situation, and I really and and I'm really interesting to see interested to interested to see how things work out with Brad Tree Living as the new GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs, and I think that he has a lot of work on his hands. I really, really do, because. As the years go by, there's less and less of a case to be made for as to why these guys, as in Matthews, Marner, Tavares, Nylander, should be sticking around. Of course, they offer a lot. They offer a lot of upside as a hockey player. They, they Offensively, defensively, they're some of the best players in the league, if you want to put it at that. But clearly, winning with that group... And I don't want to say will never be a thing, but has has never been a thing. And time is expiring. Time is running out. And that's pretty obvious. And I think it's super tough for a guy like Bradtree Living to walk into this ownership to walk into this to this mess and say, Well, I'm gonna trade Austin Matthews. I'm gonna trade Mitch Marner. Because I think the truth is is that that, that that is a lot harder than it sounds. It really, really is. But I think that the harsh reality is that moving off of one of those guys might actually be one of the better things for the franchise going forward. And the way that I look at it is like this. Any player you'll get in return, because they're still in a win-now win window, any player that they'll get in return will realistically not be equivalent to an Austin Matthews or to a Mitch Marner. However, you can probably acquire a guy that's probably two or three tiers below, but acquire other assets while also freeing up some cap space, giving you a better overall team outlook. And I think that, again, if you trade Austin Matthews, the city of Toronto is up in arms. If you trade a guy like Mitch Marner, the city is up in arms. But if you go to a team like St. Louis, and I'm just throwing something here off the top of my head, right? Like I'm not, I don't know what the cap, the cap implications are whatsoever. But if you go and try and acquire a guy like Robert Thomas or Jordan Cairo with picks, with, with depth guys, while also clearing up cap space, as much as you don't have the impact player in Austin Matthews or Mitch Marner anymore, you still have a guy, a serviceable, an a, above, above average player, right? and I'll even call him, I'll even say like a great player in this league while also spreading out the wealth. And keep in mind, you still keep around one of the two guys while also having Tavares and, and uh, William Nylander on your team. 
So again, this is all speculation and a lot easier said than done. But I'm really curious as to what Brad Tree Living will do, considering that now he's a new he's a new mind. He's a fresh brain. He's ready to make moves. And I don't and and look, he might he might play it conservative, and there might be no moves that are made this offseason. But I also wouldn't be surprised if he moves off one of those guys. Now let's shift a little bit to the to the the Pittsburgh side of things. I think that's an interesting topic because I think that Kyle Dubas, as much as he had a lot, he had a lot on his plate in Toronto. I think he has a ton on his plate in Pittsburgh. Now it's a lot less. He has a lot less. He's he's not as much in the spotlight. And I think we can all agree on that. There's less stress. There's less expectations, but I think that, We've always talked, Mark and I, about how Pittsburgh is a very well-oiled machine. Whether it was, When Mike Sullivan was coaching that team, and he still is coaching that team, but throughout the years, that team was always delivering a product. They were always... They always had winning seasons. Crosby was always a point-per-game player. Malkin ha- doesn't seem like he's aged too, too much. Latang doesn't seem like he's aged too, too much in the way that they're playing. So they've always been a well a well-oiled machine. But what is Kyle Dubas going to do now that it's been that this is the first time that the Pittsburgh has missed the playoffs in a while and the two years prior they were bounced in the first round. What's the next move for this Pittsburgh team? Is it to look towards something in goal? Is it to trade one of your big name big name players in Crosby or Malkin or Latang, which truthfully I don't think is the way to go? Because they're not costing you too much money. And I was reading I was reading an article talking about the Brad Tree Living situation and talking about the Kyle Dubas situation on The Athletic. And I really like this recommendation. Because I think that... And, and the recommendation is, is that the, the, the Kyle, Kyle Dubas' first move should probably be to address the goaltending situation in Pittsburgh. There are a lot of free agent goaltenders out there or not necessarily free agent, I th- players that could be traded for, like a Connor Hellebuck, or a cheaper option would be a John Gibson, who they can go out and they can secure some stability in the, in the net. Last year, Tristan Jari did not have a good season by any means. The year before that, he played very, very well. But last year, you could tell that he's not necessarily a complete goaltender, and he's not someone who's going to bring them back to the prior success that they were used to having. So with that being said, I think that it would be a great way to open things up for Kyle Dubas by going out and acquiring a goalie and starting from the goalie and moving outwards. Because I think that they have a very great and I think they have a great foundation. But I think that by establishing that there is a need in net, they can actually they can actually envision a proper a proper next step for this team. So now I'm going to go into the last two topics of the day. I'm going to finish it off with some draft lottery stuff. And again, like I said, we're going to do a whole episode on the draft and talk a lot about prospects. And guys, I've been doing my due diligence. I've 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 been trying to, you know, do the best possible to figure out and who who's the best player that the like who should the Montreal Canadiens draft 
in this upcoming draft. I've, I've read a lot of scouting reports. I've listened to a lot of videos. I've talked to a few people. I'm trying to get as much insight as possible. And I think that's going to make for a really, really fun um, draft episode. So stay tuned for that. And I can't give you an exact date, but I think that considering that the draft is in July, I think it might be in the next two weeks or so. So I think that that's going to be a lot of fun. But let's look to the draft lottery for a second. The Chicago Blackhawks win the draft lottery. That's crazy. To me, that's crazy. And look, good for them. That's, I, I, I don't think that there's any, again, right? Like if Bedard is going to any team, it's an automatic game changer. It's an automatic franchise difference maker, if you will. And look, Chicago has a storied franchise. They've had prior success in the mid-2010s. And I think that with Bedard, you're setting yourself up for a quick turnaround. Now, we talked at length about the moves that they made last offseason, where they went out and dished off Alex DeBrincat. They got rid of Kirby Dock, and they sent him our way to Montreal, which ended up working out for Montreal. But now they're about to get Connor Bedard and they had shipped off those pieces prior. And it's kind of it's kind of a what-if situation, but how would this team look if they hadn't made those moves? Now again, it's a it's a massive what-if, but it's it's definitely something to think about. But nonetheless, this team is clearly already set up for a, a nice future. They have a relatively deep prospect pool. They have, they have uh, Colton Dock, that's Kirby's brother. They have Kevin Korczynski, a very big defenseman who's logging some big minutes. He's playing in Seattle in the WHL right now, and he actually just lost in the Memorial Cup. You're looking at Nolan Allen, who was a first-round pick last year, and you have Lucas Reichel, who was also a first-round pick a couple of years back. So they have these, they have these building blocks. And now you're adding probably one of the best prospects to ever enter an NHL draft since Connor McDavid to this to this bright future. Now, again, for Kyle Davidson, it's still going to be a massive project. However, I think that he is I think that he was kind of gifted a perfect opportunity or situation and he was gifted the perfect player to start this rebuild this quote-unquote rebuild and now I think that it will be a little bit accelerated right you have two first round picks including your first overall you have four second round picks which you never know what can happen with those picks I think that Chicago will be better sooner rather than later just because of that just because of Connor Bedard and look, I know everyone's saying there's no need to discuss what he can do on the ice, what kind of player is, what kind of player he is, what kind of impact he has on the game. And even though there's not much to discuss, it's still fun to talk about because I think that every day you un- like we're unlocking new information about him and about how he changes the game and how how his how everything he does is on on a scale of one to five is a five. So it's just so much fun to talk about him. And and you know what? The truth is that obviously, look, as Habs fans, you wanted to see him in Montreal. There's no doubt about that. And 
you're sitting there, you're sweating it out, and you're you're waiting, you're waiting for the the right pick to you're wait you're waiting for Montreal to be given a top three pick, and and we're ecstatic, let alone the first overall pick. But you know what? I'm excited for the league because this is a player that can really turn things around from a marketing standpoint as well. The NHL has had a tough time marketing their players, and we've seen that firsthand. But I think that Bedard, and he might not be necessarily the most marketable personality, but his game is most definitely marketable, just like Connor McDavid's. So I think you're adding another talent like that, and I think that he does have a, a personality to him sometimes from certain interviews. Again, we don't I don't know him personally, but I'm just giving I'm just from what I've seen. So I think that there's obviously some room there for the NHL to really capitalize and let's see if they do that properly. But let's let's move over to where the Habs are picking. We're picking the Montreal Canadiens are picking at number 5. And look, I understand that there's a lot of people. I won't say that are are necessarily upset, but I think there's a lot of people that were hoping for something inside the top 3. And don't get me wrong, I was obviously hoping for that as well. But I actually think that picking 5th overall might actually be one of the better picks in this draft, and I'll explain why. Number 1 is Bedard. Number 2 is Adam Fantilli. And now as we can speculate that Matt Vemichkov might be a good enough prospect to be selected at number two. There are a lot of concerns considering his contract in the in, in the KHL, and there are a lot of concerns considering that how long will it be until he arrives in North America, and will he ever arrive in North America consider, uh, considering the situation in Russia? And obviously that creates a ton of speculation, so I try to stay away from it, but it still doesn't take away from the fact that Matt Vemichkov is probably the second most talented player in this draft. But let's say number one goes Bedard, number two goes Fantilli, and number three goes Leal Carlson. Now the Montreal Canadiens have the ability to choose between Will Smith and Matt Vemichkov. And as much as I don't think that the San Jose Sharks will pass on Matt Vemichkov, I don't think that the Montreal Canadiens are in a bad situation to pick Will Smith. I think that that is the best player available. And I think that you cannot go wrong with a player like that. And I think that there's obviously some concerns considering that he's played it for the USNDP his, for, for, for however long it's been. He's, he's amassed insane amounts of points. And that, that program caters to, a very, to, to skilled players. And Will Smith is, is the epitome of a skilled player. He's a pass-first type of guy. He reads the game like no other. He and sometimes look, he overdoes it. Sometimes he he holds on the on, holds on to the puck for too long. Sometimes he buries himself in a corner. But his vision is incredible, and he has all these assets that make that are going to make him a great player in this league. And all of that to say is that whether it's Carlson, whether it's Mitchkov, whether it's Will Smith, the Montreal Canadiens are set up to have a great pick. And look. I think that there's obviously no guarantees. The closest thing to a guarantee in this draft is Connor Bedard, but other than that, there's no guarantees. And especially in today's NHL, where it takes a much longer to develop young athletes, where it takes a lot longer to develop these players, and it could take some more time, right? We're looking at a little bit of a, uh, at, at a tougher trajectory with a guy like Slavkovsky, potentially. And as much as I love him as a player, and I think that he has the raw assets and the skill set, I think that there is a lot of refining to do. If you look back to a later draft and you look at Quentin Byfield, 
great build, but he's taking a little bit longer to make his stride to the NHL than than normal. And it, it's been a while since since the top three picks have all played and have all flourished in their first season. But I think that's the reality of the NHL at this point in time. And now if I'm looking back to last year, and I'm looking back to last year's draft, and I'll be honest with you, I was a Slavkovsky guy through and through. And I really thought that I liked him over Shane Wright, let alone Logan Cooley and Simon Nemitz. But what I didn't like about the Habs situation is that because I didn't think that there was a massive gap between all those players, I thought that if the Montreal Canadiens were given the second or third pick, even fourth at this point considering what was on the board, they might have been in a better situation because they would have let the best player available fall to them. And that's why I like this year's situation so much. And it's because they're literally going to have the best player available fall to them and it will be none other than their choice to make. So if they capitalize on this pick, I think that that's, I think that that's a game changer. And I think that's a guy that will automatically slide into your top six, not necessarily next year, but for the future, for future purposes. And if the development goes right, whether it's in a college league, whether it's back in the CHL or whether it's across, uh, whether it's in Russia or whether it's in Europe, for example, Leo Carlson in Sweden, I think that the Montreal Canadiens are set up to have another, add another good player to this already talented pool of prospects. And the last thing I wanted to talk about today, guys, and I mean, it's, it's tough, it's tough to not talk about it, but it's, it's the Stanley Cup playoffs. How did we get to a point where the Florida Panthers are in this, are in the cup final? I mean, that's just unheard of. I couldn't have predicted that in a million years. And don't get me wrong, I think it's a pretty cool story. I think it's nice to watch a guy like Kachuk play. It's nice to watch a guy like Bobrovsky play. It's nice to watch Paul Maurice get the credit he deserves for the coaching that he's done. What's funny is that I really didn't love Paul Maurice as a coach in Winnipeg, and I didn't really love him as a coach this year in in Florida. And clearly he's proving me wrong with with this Cinderella story run. We're a Tuesday night, we're a Monday night, excuse me. We're Monday night, June 5th. The second game of the Stanley Cup Finals will be underway in probably no more than 15 minutes. Second game in Vegas. Vegas has proven to be an incredibly strong team. I thought that they, I, if I'm being completely honest with you, I thought that they would lose all three rounds they've played so far. I thought they'd lose to Winnipeg. Which might have been um, might have been a little bit skeptical on my end, but I thought they'd lose to Winnipeg. I thought they'd lose to Edmonton for sure, and I thought that they'd lose to Dallas. And the fact that they're here really goes to show that they've done an incredible job building this team from top to bottom. And if they win the cup, it's there's there's a there's a lot of credit to be given to the people upstairs. But all that to say is that this is a very unique finals matchup. And after the first game, I really don't hate it. I think it's two teams that deserve to be where they are based off this, this playoff run. I think that Florida's beat the best teams in their path at every level. Vegas has beat the best teams in their path at every level. So they deserve to be where they are. And I think it sets up for an actual, an underrated finals matchup. But listen, guys, I'm going to end this episode off now. We're about 35 minutes in. It was really different. And look, I kind of got my groove at the... I, I got my groove... 
but it was really interesting to do this and it was a ton of fun, honestly. But I just wanted to say thank you guys so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for listening. And you know what? Let's finish it off with a question and I'll throw it up as a poll. It's one nothing Vegas in this series. Let's say Vegas goes up 2 nothing tonight. Do the Florida Panthers come back and win this series? Now, I know that might sound like a crazy question, all things considered. But that's two games that the Florida Panthers might lose on the road. They'll, go be, they'll be going back home. So as long as they don't lose at home, right, they're not, in a ba- they're, not, they're, no, they're not yet in a bad spot. But that's my question of the day. If the Florida Panthers go down 2 nothing. Do they come back and win this series? Do you, are you optimistic about it? Are you pessimistic about it? Are you kind of on the fence because they've been playing well, but you know I don't think that they're good enough to you don't think that they're good enough to beat a team like Vegas and come back down to nothing? So that that's my question. My other question is: Let's say that this this series is tied up at one tonight. Who do you have for the rest of the series? Give me your pick. I'll post it up on YouTube. Uh, YouTube. Excuse me. Post it up on Instagram. I'll post it up on Twitter. And guys, be sure to go check out the TikTok. I'm going to be posting a few TikToks on a weekly basis. There will be a lot of interactive posts on Twitter and Instagram. So if you guys are into that stuff, please interact. It's a ton of fun. But anyways, guys, I said it already. But thank you so much for tuning in. It was an absolute pleasure. And I'll we'll catch you, catch you next time. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. Take care.